Welcome to yet another episode of Fax Machine. I'm here with Rob and Noah, and today we're here to settle an age-old question. Do animals suck? We'll talk about animals that have bad reputations, connotations, and or associations, and in doing so, possibly reconsider whether those assessments are deserved. After sharing our three scintillating facts, we'll wrap up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. And just as a subtle reminder, be sure to check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram at Fax Machine Pod, and also on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. With that, let's get things started. Take it away, Rob. This week, I learned jellyfish produce unique proteins, which spurred a revolution in biological research, inspired engineers in both water and air propulsion systems, and they may contain the secrets to cloning and immortality. Oh. Wow. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Cool. So I'd say that's a strong case for the jellyfish. Um, but let me just let me just clear the air, or the water in this case. <laughs> jellyfish is a kind of confusing term. And so, in fact, when people say jellyfish, they're referring to like a vast collection of animals that aren't even in the same phylum, or kind of like the second highest ranking of life. And so part of what's amazing, and part of the reason why we say some jellyfish may have figured out immortality is that jellyfish actually go through two phases. One is called the polyp phase, which is sedentary. The jellyfish is laying still, kind of planted on something. And then it releases um, its medusa phase, which also is a really cool name because usually it has this kind of gross head with a lot of tentacles or hair coming out of it, similar to medusa, and it swims around the ocean. And this is the phase with which most of us are familiar with jellyfish. Um, but when they're under stress and threatened, jellyfish can actually revert back to their polyp phase, which is more protective. And so this is one way to avoid dying in an unfortunate accident in the oceans. Secondly, jellyfish in medical science have a really good reputation. I think you guys are familiar with a protein that I'm going to say. It's the green fluorescent protein. Oh, yep. very familiar. So it's about 20 years since the Nobel Prize for this went out. This has been huge for medical research, and it's a way that scientists have figured out the DNA jellyfish have to make a glowing green protein and kind of attach it wherever they want into a scientific um, system. But my favorite part about the jellyfish, having an engineering background and liking to build crap, is that jellyfish robots, they're the new big thing. And so there's one lab that's actually out of Woods Hole that made a jellyfish robot that can operate underwater. And one of the creators, John, Dr. John H. Costello of Providence College and the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole said, discovering uniform bending characteristics has reoriented the search for understanding the advantages of flexibility and propulsion. And he makes the claim that this is like the next big way um, that we're going to have huge advances in aquatic propulsion. Uh, and he says a lot about it, but he boils it down in his last four words of an interview. Animals do it better. That's so cool. basically, he thinks that we should all do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> I think that's a fair summary <laughs> nice. of what Dr. But Costello said. you're limiting said. yourself to mammals there, though, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it is really cool, the robots they've built that swim like jellyfish. And there are these videos 
um, available through Woods Hole, just showing these little tiny robots that kind of move through the water. Even more, and these are all funded by the Navy and the, the Department of Defense. Even more cool than them, though, I think, is the mini flying robot jellyfish. <laughs> and just as as a name alone, but there's just a lot of them. Yeah, oh, they're very small. <laughs> they're actually all around us right now. <laughs> Both. <God. laughs> there are many, many flying jellyfish. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so it's the mini flying jelly, mini flying robot jellyfish that hovers. This was created down at NYU in the lab of Dr. Leif Ristroff, and it's a bobbing in-air robot um, that has stability from the shape and uh, propulsion systems of a jellyfish. Now these are fascinating little robots. They're actually only about a centimeter or two long. Uh, at the moment, they're a little bit larger than a quarter, actually, and he hopes to make them smaller in the future. Um, he wanted to strip down the system so that it could carry as little as possible and be a discreet spy craft to fit into small spaces and fly undetected. So again, this is a super efficient way for these materials to move through the air. And so he said that now that the design has been proven, the fine tuning can begin. So another prototype robot that may be the jellyfish robot of the future. Great. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> I know what you're saying is, these drones are amazing, but we really need more jellyfish-like drones. <laughs> everybody loves predator drones. What do people like even more? Jellyfish. <laughs> so in your purview then, jellyfish do not suck, because these are all pretty interesting things that they've well, enabled and are capable of. I would say that this sullies the waters on our decision about jellyfish. Oh, And right. so it would seem that jellyfish are a net positive. But what if I told you more? Please, go on. <laughs> so, everyone knows many jellyfish can sting humans. And in fact, at the moment in the New York area, there is a, a little bit of an outbreak of a, what's called a clinging jellyfish. I heard about the Portuguese man-o'-wars washing up on the Jersey Shore. Ooh, those as well. So, yeah. uh, the Portuguese man-o'-war is an interesting example. It's actually not a jellyfish. Ah. Yeah. It's a colonial nadarian related to jellyfish, but it's actually composed of many smaller organisms living, like many different organisms, living in one kind of live nest. And so they have the potential to sting, but the individual stinging cells all belong to different organisms, wow. making it really complicated and actually really unique <laughs> in its organization. Yeah. Okay, so oh. many jellyfish, like these clinging jellies, can sting and harm humans, uh, inject toxins, and actually be responsible for hospital visits, uh, which is pretty unfortunate. And that's kind of the reputation that we're familiar with jellyfish, um, just being annoying, stinging, and potentially fatal. But all this, even the stinging of jellyfish, might not be enough to convince you the truth, which is that jellyfish suck. <gasps> I know. What? <laughs> so what could possibly be so bad about jellyfish that it outweighs all of the good they've done in biological research, engineering, science? Well, let me tell you. Jellyfish have been responsible for at least three nuclear power plant shutdowns in the last 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Why? Well, because they're actually, like, really pro-clean energy and they hate <laughs> nuclear. <laughs> little signs and all their chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> They've been protesting for decades. <laughs> but actually, a lot of these nuclear power plants that are currently in use, they have water flow inlets for their cooling tanks. Oh. And these, um, these inlets have been just really disproportionately affected by the jellyfish booms. And so the, the world's oceans are actually probably the most full of jellyfish that they've ever been. Jellyfish wow. are on the rise, and their populations are really doing tremendously well. Um, a spokesperson from one nuclear power plant 
uh, a man named Andres Osterberg, who represents the Oskarsham plant in the Baltic Sea in Sweden, says that we hope we have solved the problem regarding the jellyfish, but we are not sure because they can come back. <laughs> yeah. So when jellyfish clog the pipes, new water is not able to get into the power plant to cool the reactor. When the nuclear reactor is not cooled, that's not cool. <laughs> so bad things happen. Um, there have been no major meltdowns because of jellyfish, but it's been close. So that particular power plant has happened at least twice that they've admitted in 2011 and 2015 that they have shut down the reactor and stopped the production from the boiler, which is usually 1,400 megawatts of output. Well, since you hate jellyfish so much, I thought you might enjoy uh, the knowledge that NASA has been giving jellyfish vertigo. Ooh, I'm, yeah, so I'm they, excited. <laughs> NASA has sent up over 2,500 jellyfish into space uh, to see how uh, microgravity affects them. Uh, and basically what happens is they get very confused and they're unable to sort of like right themselves uh, in a way that is analogous to vertigo. Uh, and I read about this um, in a story in The Atlantic that was titled, I don't think you're ready for this, comma, jelly. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Fantastic. So, so basically, they brought almost 2,500 jellyfish polyps up uh, to the International Space Station, and uh, the experiment was called The Effects of Microgravity-Induced Weightlessness on Aurelia Ephyria. Uh, differentiation and statolith synthesis. Over the course of the mission, the jellyfish proliferated, uh, and by the end of the mission, there were about 60,000 jellyfish orbiting the Earth. And uh, they just turns out they really don't like microgravity. Mm. So I thought you might enjoy the, the uh, notion that we are torturing jellyfish. I, I do feel fairly good about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, je- jellyfish have no brains and a very basic nerve net, but whatever sort of pain we can inflict on them, I think is good. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> well, Rob has a very clear position on whether or not jellyfish suck. I'd say so. But do we have any other evidence one way or the other? One redeeming quality of jellyfish is that there's a species of jellyfish called the Drymonema larsoni that if you've ever seen Yellow Submarine and the Blue Meanies, yes. this one is called the Pink Meanie, and it just looks like a pink Blue Meanie. <laughs> and it's kind of okay. cute. <laughs> but all the others well, suck. Well, there you go. <laughs> Another interesting thing about uh, jellyfish is that actually... Uh, one of the killers in uh, Sherlock Holmes story was, in fact, a jellyfish. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. The lion's mane? Yes. In yeah. the adventure of the lion's mane, basically what happens is Holmes is in retirement uh, somewhere in England, and he's just walking on the beach one day, uh, and he stumbles across this guy who is clearly in pain and is just, like, collapses on the ground and then just says something about the lion's mane. Uh, and then he dies. And so they go through this whole story when they finally figure out that it was actually the murderer was a lion's mane jellyfish. And Holmes takes a rock and kills it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Sherlock Holmes and Rob, you guys have yeah. a lot in common. Yeah, wow. Uh, your distaste for those murdering Nadarians. That's, that's an interesting Holmes 
Yeah. It sounds like his later stuff. Yeah, it, it was. Um, <laughs> it was in the return, but it was. And Holmes generally was no stranger to uh, administering his own justice when he felt it was appropriate. Mm. Um, yeah, that particular story is interesting in that that was written um, later on in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's career, um, in particular after World War One, wherein he lost, I believe, both a son and a nephew to the war. And it's an odd story where it's not really framed so much as a mystery. Um, from what I recall, he sees this event happen and then talks to uh, the wife of the de- deceased man and sort of hears her life story. And it's a very, it's a very kind of like heartfelt sort of serious story, not so much a mystery. Um, and like analytically afterwards, it was seen as potentially Sir Arthur Conan Doyle kind of working through his own um, feelings of, of loss through that story. Wow. Anyways. So the jellyfish is really World War One. <laughs> Yeah, and I think we can yeah, all agree think... <laughs> that that <laughs> one was no good. <laughs> Thanks very much, Rob. Noah, what have you got for us? This week I learned pigeons do not suck because they are the only birds who can. So most birds can actually lap water into their bill, um, much the same way that cats and dogs do. Uh, well, they don't have bills, but <laughs> we the cats and dogs <laughs> drink. cat laps some water into its bill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, all birds besides pigeons and doves uh, have to tilt their head back to swallow. Other birds drink by doing all kinds of different things. Um, for example, ironically, swallows can't do what pigeons and doves do, even though they're called swallows. Uh, and what they have to do is skim water from the surface of a body of water as they fly over. Um, pelicans are known to collect rain in their bucket-like bills, um, and a certain kind of pelican called a brown pelican also drinks seawater. Uh, and they're really interesting because they are like especially equipped for desalinization, uh, allowing them to absorb water, but to exude the salt in their urine or through salt glands and ducts near their eyes or nostrils. Um, and finally, some birds don't drink at all, but rather to get all their moisture from food. Um, but getting to the point that pigeons are super cool... Uh, for the purposes of this episode, I want to formally state that pigeon and dove will be used interchangeably because they are, in fact, two words that can describe the same animal. In modern, everyday speech, uh, as opposed to the scientific usage or the formal usage, dove frequently indicates a pigeon that is white or nearly white. Okay. Hmm. Um, however, the distinction between doves and pigeons is not actually very consistent, uh, and most people just use the terms dove and pigeon interchangeably, um, whether they know it or not. And the species most commonly referred to as pigeon is actually a species known by scientists as the rock dove. Some of this confusion is etymological in origin. Pigeon is a French word that derives from the Latin pipio, although exactly how, I'm not super clear. (laughs) Uh, But uh, pipio means like a peeping chick, uh, while dove is the Germanic word uh, that refers to the bird's diving flight. So, okay, I admit, there are a few diseases you can get from being around pigeons, Um, But honestly, most of them can be prevented by just not touching pigeon poop with your bare hands. And that may be a bit of a tall order here in New York City. Easier said than done, (laughs) Noah. But but like, all you have to do is wash your hands after contact and you'll be fine. Okay. So here are all the reasons pigeons are awesome. All right. The common city pigeon, also known as the rock pigeon or rock dove, might be the first bird humankind ever domesticated. You can see them in art dating back as far as 4500 BCE in modern Iraq, and they've been a valuable source of food for thousands of years. 
Pigeons were domesticated in ancient Mesopotamia because they reminded us of the best of humanity. First of all, they're monogamous. Each pair serves and cares for each other and their offspring. They have a strong homing instinct and fierce protection instinct in the nest, yet they're largely peaceful creatures. In addition, they are highly intelligent, but live what humans saw as a simple and ideal life. Hmm. I feel like there's a lot of projection going on there. No. (laughs) Um, This pigeon is just like me. (laughs) Pigeons enjoy the Sunday crossword. Yes, they do, in fact. That's true. Um... But just more about their parenting, they actually are uh, pretty unique among birds um, in that both sexes of doves or pigeons produce something called crop milk uh, to feed their young. Uh, Also, uh, just cutely, young doves and pigeons are called squabs. Hashtag squab goals. (laughs) Nice. Very nice. So you, you said pigeons were called rock doves, but in my book, there's only one rock dove, and that's the one winged dove. By Stevie Nicks. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was a song about owls. <laughs> Baby, who? Say who? <laughs> awesome. Well, I know pigeons were implicated in the 1976 um, respiratory distress outbreak in Philadelphia, otherwise known as Legionnaires' disease. This is all propaganda. Really? Anti pigeon lobby. I, oh boy. No, it was. <laughs> it was from. It was from the hotel lobby, actually. <laughs> um, when they had no idea what Legionnaires' disease was or why so many people were dying from it, the only thing that they knew was like, well, it happened in a city in this building, and pigeons are on top. <laughs> and they thought it was they thought it was a psittacosis outbreak, which was a common bird disease, but actually has never been carried by pigeons, and no pigeon-to-human transmission of psittacosis has ever been documented. But it was their leading theory for most of 1976 when they were investigating this outbreak. So what ended up happening? Why did you say it was a hotel? Oh, so the the Legionnaires outbreak of 1976 is an interesting story unto itself. But it was where the American Legion was having its bicentennial celebration in Philadelphia. Um, And many of the the veterans in the American Legion came down with a mysterious respiratory disease um, in the days after the convention. And it it wasn't actually solved for another six months. Microbiologists finally identified uh, the Legionella bacteria from the water coolers in the hotel. Wow. Uh, But they had been actually, like, missed the first several times. And so it was an unsolved mystery for half a year. Um, And because of the timing, people also thought that it was a terrorist attack on the United States or just some other, like, strange disease that they had never heard of before. But what is the relation to pigeons? Well, because pigeons were there and there was no other answer... Everyone was like, well, it's got to be the pigeons. It was literally one of the, the CDC's leading theories was that the pigeons were the carriers of disease. But were they? No, they were not. Okay. Pigeons absolved <laughs> of responsibility for the Legionnaires outbreak. Yeah, they got to <laughs> let, let the record show pigeons were not responsible for causing Legionnaires. Clean ticket. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yet another reason they don't suck. Um, so, and looking at other reasons why pigeons are great, because I think they're pretty great too. Um, I looked, of course, in terms of their uh, notable role in history as uh, carriers of various messages across great distances, um, using people as a hobby and also in wartime. And in particular, one of uh, my favorite pigeon heroes that I came across in looking at this uh, was named Cher Ami. Uh, so, I think it was a he, right? She turned to my girl. Okay, so she <laughs> was uh, a homing pigeon during World War One. 
Um, and she was notable for essentially um, allowing the rescue of an American troop led by Major Charles White Whittlesley. So they were trapped um, in a small depression in the battlefields behind enemy lines. And essentially runners that he sent to try and, uh, you know, send news and recruit aid uh, kept getting shot down, as did a bunch of previous pigeons that he sent out. But Cher Me, their last, their only hope, was sent out with a message saying, we are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. So she left and tried to flew home. And despite the fact that she also was shot, um, notably being shot through the breast, blind in one eye, and also losing a leg in the process, she still flew the 25 miles back to division headquarters and allowed those troops to be saved. Um, and to thank her, they nursed her back to health built her a little peg leg for her oh. leg, and uh, wow. sent her home to the U.S. with General Pershing. Good job, Sherami. In addition to famous pigeons who did great things, there are also many famous people who did great things who really liked pigeons, too. Uh, <laughs> one of them was Charles Darwin. Uh, so pigeon breeding was a common hobby in Victorian England from everyone from, like, well-off businessmen to the average people on the street. Um, so... There are some crazy weird pigeons that have resulted from this long history of interbreeding and selective uh, breeding for different traits. Um, and some of them are really extraordinary. And we'll post some of them on the Instagram and Twitter accounts. Um, you should definitely look them up. Uh, but there are those with like these crazy, huge like fan tails. Um, there's one called a Scandaroon, which doesn't look <laughs> anything like a pigeon at all. Um, there's one where... Uh, the, basically the pigeons have been bred so that their heads are like all the way back. So if you look at them straight on, you can't even see their faces because their necks curve so far backward. So there's just like this huge diversity. Um, so Charles Darwin didn't necessarily 100% get the theory of natural selection from all the finches that he observed and the different adaptations of their beaks. It actually took quite a bit of time and he wanted to like amass evidence uh, and one of the things he did was not necessarily like this natural selection that he observed uh, in the Galapagos Islands, but what uh, might be reasonably called artificial selection. And nowhere was this clear in the way that pigeons had been bred from an original species that was that was common throughout cities and this incredibly diverse group of animals. Um, and in fact, in his 1868 book, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, um, has two chapters about pigeons, whereas dogs and cats, varied uh, themselves, uh, share a single chapter. Um, so they played an important role in the development of the theory of natural selection. Cool. Another person who did great things, who loved pigeons, was Nikola Tesla. Um, he used to care for injured wild pigeons in his New York City hotel room, even later in his life when he was destitute. Um, but he had a favorite, and Tesla's favorite pigeon was a white female uh, about whom he once said, Quote, I loved that pigeon. I loved her as a man loves a woman, and she loved me. That pigeon was the joy of my life. As long as I had her, there was purpose in my life. Wow. Yeah. And apparently he was completely inconsolable after she died. Jeez. Yeah. Serious devotion. <laughs> kind of makes you team Edison, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely understand that. Well, not completely, but I, I do sympathize with his enthusiasm for pigeons, which after researching this fact, I am just completely in line with. So I wanted to end with uh, a really interesting story I learned. Um, in fact, it is the... You gotta bear with me. <laughs> okay. okay. The earliest known story of a mermaid. Okay. Oh. So 
this is the story of, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this, but it looks like Derketo, D-E-R-K-E-T-O. She had the face of a woman, uh, but the rest of her body is that of a fish. Um, And at some point she was, it says, inflicted with a terrible desire. Um, And so she slept with a young Syrian man. Uh, and had a daughter. Um, Who's the Syrian guy? <laughs> it doesn't know. It's unnamed. Uh, it says that because of her shame and grief, she uh, she made the man, young man disappear. <laughs> it's not. It doesn't elaborate on that. So what we know about this story comes from a uh, Greek physician known as Catesius of Cnidus. Are you sure um, that he was a physician, or was he diagnosed with Catesius of Cnidus? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound good. I'll admit, it does sound like a disease. Um, but he heard the story, and basically what happens when this mermaid um, has an affair with a human man, uh, so the daughter is one half mermaid, which by my math makes her one quarter fish. Mm. All right. And checks out. So <laughs> what, what's interesting about the story related to the theme is that uh, this mermaid, Derketo, uh, she's ashamed of what she's done. She casts away the man, um, and she, <laughs> she fully casts, casts away. away. <laughs> <laughs> what a total role reversal. Yeah. Um, and she changes into a fish and just goes into the lake or sea or whatever, and she's never really heard from again. Um, but she abandons her daughter, and her daughter's name is Samiramis. And that is uh, whatever language this is for dove or pigeon. And the reason that is, is because in this legend, by the way, this is, this is not historical. This is a legend. Okay? I, don't know if, oh, I don't know if you guys have gotten that so far. This whole time I thought that actually happened. Um, okay. uh, Samiramis um, was abandoned as a baby, um, and she was uh, taken care of and raised by pigeons. Um, and what these pigeons would do was produce the milk, uh, that we talked about earlier, that they do the crop milk, and they fed her with that for a long time. And then when she got older, they would chop up fish in their beaks, and they would give that to her. Whoa! Um, yeah. <laughs> Not Almost, cool. But also, she's a quarter fish. Yeah. So, oh, true. Hey. That's kind of gross. Yeah. Well, fish are... Problematic. I mean, fish are pretty varied. I mean, that's like saying we eat cows, because we're mammals. And that's that's crazy. I mean, some people would probably agree with that, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just you're, you're just scared. making someone's point. But anyway, yeah. the, point, the point is... That she was raised by pigeons and fed by pigeons and taken care of. Uh, And then finally, a high-up military guy in the king's service saw her, fell in love with her. Uh, They got married. Then they went on a bunch of, like, military adventures together. It's really interesting. You can read more about it. Uh, And there's this quote from the story. It happened that her husband was completely subservient to her. And since he did nothing without her knowledge, he succeeded in everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then what happens is she and her husband, I believe, went into a battle to capture the city, and they just kicked ass, and then the king was like, whoa, whoa, who dis? Uh, That's <laughs> a direct quote. Um, and then the king was like, whoa, I really like her, so he offered her husband a trade. Uh, what he, the king wanted was to be married to Semiramis, and then the Semiramis's husband could be married to the king's daughter. So basically what happens after that is that uh, Samiramis is married to the king, um, and they, you know, they conquer a lot of land, and then eventually the king dies, and Samiramis rules this massive empire for 42 years, during which she conquers this big chunk of Asia, as well as northeastern Africa. So, basically, according to this legend, if your name is Dove or Pigeon, and you're raised by doves or pigeons, you will most likely conquer the world. Therefore, pigeons do not suck. Hashtag squab goals. <laughs> 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 all 
right, thanks, Noah. Uh, so now we've arrived at my fact, uh, which is that spiders, despite having a terrible reputation, don't suck at all. They're actually extremely cool and amazing, and I love them a lot. All right, so first of all, spiders have a bad rap that they really don't deserve. As with most bugs, they're more afraid of us than we are of them, and they won't bite unless they're threatened. So black widows and brown recluse spiders, uh, which are the most dangerous spiders that we have here in the U.S., um, will kill on average six people a year, but there are antivenoms available for both of their, bite, their bites, so it's still a pretty rare occurrence. And actually, with medical treatment, death from a spider bite is basically unheard of in the U.S., now, cows and horses, on the other hand, which everyone loves and thinks are cute, kill 22 and 20 people per year in the U.S. respectively. So, just to say, wow. it's always the ones you least expect. I also want to say that I think uh, Australia has like a, a bunch of the most venomous spiders in the world, and the animal that kills the most people every year in Australia is horses. Uh, and also, actually, the most venomous spider in the world that I've seen is the Sydney funnelweb spider, um, which is really interesting in that it is incredibly venomous and incredibly dangerous, but only to humans and primates and to no other mammals. Which is interesting because there are no primates that are indigenous to Australia. So oh, it's just yeah. very strange. Well, moving on from the venomous part of spiders, because that's not important and we can ignore that. Uh, <laughs> despite this, <laughs> despite how few deaths they are actually responsible for, uh, arachnophobia is one of the most common phobias worldwide. Um, and while it's traditionally thought to arise from conditioning, so you imagine uh, personal experiences that people might have with spiders invoke a fear of them as a consequence, a recent study by the Max Planck Institute in Germany actually observed that babies demonstrate stress responses, specifically when shown pictures of spiders and also snakes, um, when compared to other animals and plants um, of similar sizes and colors, suggesting that our fear of them may have an evolutionary origin. Hmm. Um, and it also doesn't help that spiders are often depicted as man-eating murder machines in pop culture, um, thinking here of Aragog and Shalab, um, and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, of course, um, and are also the subject of a lot of ridiculous urban legends. To set the record straight, you do not eat eight spiders in your sleep every year. Nor has anyone ever died after being bitten by a nefarious spider lurking under an airport toilet seat. Have you guys heard that second one? No. No. Okay. Well, it's not true. Well, now I'm worried about it. So don't about worry it. about it. <laughs> so that was actually an internet hoax that uh, went around during the late 90s. Um, and hilariously, it was written to demonstrate how quickly misinformation travels on the internet. But this hoax uh, centered around an article that was published in a phony medical journal about a South American spider that killed several women in a non-existent Chicago airport. Uh, to me, the real kicker was the name of this spider in this hoax was Arachneus gluteus. So, <laughs> butt spider. And yet somehow it gained traction. But hey. So I want to bring us back to, you said that we don't actually eat eight spiders a night. Yes. Are you saying we eat more? No. We, we <laughs> like very, very likely don't eat any spiders at all. You because know anything about my no... diet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Fad diets aside, we do not eat any spiders because they would have no reason or inclination to climb into our mouths. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm vegetarian. I, I, well, I do eat spiders. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're a raconteer? A <laughs> There you go. <laughs> 
Um, and also, as a side note, if you, like me, uh, enjoy getting lost in a mountain of spider literature for an afternoon, um, Rod Crawford, an arachnologist at the Brick Museum in Seattle, uh, runs a very peruseworthy blog about debunking spider myths on the museum's website. So I spent uh, quite a bit of time this past weekend going through that and then regurgitating all of it to people I had brunch with. So I apologize. <laughs> I'm sure them. they loved that. Post hoc. Yeah. As oh, well as your yeah. use of the word regurgitate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking about uh, <laughs> blogs and spiders, um, mm-hmm. are you guys familiar with XKCD? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Russell Monroe's uh, webcomic, but he also does a blog called What If, uh, in which he answers hypothetical questions with science. Um, and one of his questions was, which has a greater gravitational pull on me, the sun or spiders? <laughs> and basically the idea was there are tons and tons of spiders, and it's a big old biomass, right? And that, because they have mass, they exert some gravity. And obviously there's way you know less mass in the spiders that there are compared to the sun, but the sun is also much, much farther away. Mm. So the question this guy posed... That's an inverse square right there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the question that was posed was, which has the larger gravitational effect on me? Is it spiders or is it the sun? Um, And it's really interesting. You can go and read uh, on the What If blog, but basically the the conclusion reached is that it's always going to be the sun. And the quote from it that is just amazing is, No matter which way you look at it, the bottom line is that we live our lives surrounded by tiny spiders on a world completely dominated by a gigantic star. But, hey, at least it's not the other way around. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really like about spiders is something that they have in common with us, which is their uh, relationship with hard drugs. Um, (laughs) And so if you, you, and this has been done in a a couple of studies that actually traced uh, web building, and then they look at the resultant webs, and so if you give spiders a number of different drugs, um, including marijuana, mescaline, LSD, and caffeine, you see some interesting results where um, under the influence of marijuana and mescaline, you get a decreased regularity um, of the spokes of the web. Uh, this is also true, unfortunately, for most of us in caffeine. Uh, higher doses of caffeine really make the spiders make irregular or erratic web patterns with uh, irregular spokes. But interestingly, under the influence of LSD, um, especially under low doses of LSD, spiders increase the regularity of the spokes within their web. Wow. So they actually make hmm. better webs. That's crazy. That's nuts. So not only are spiders not invertebrate enemy number one, but we also really need them in an agricultural and ecological sense as a consequence of their pro bono pest control services. So worldwide, spiders eat more insects than birds and bats combined and eat within the range of 400 to 800 million tons of insects per year. So to put this in human terms, we also eat 400 million tons of meat and fish per year. We don't know exactly what would happen in a world without spiders, luckily for us, because we have them. (laughs) (laughs) But there are theories. Um, So for one thing, the extreme surplus of bugs uh, that would result would likely cause a famine due to widespread crop destruction. Um, Spiders also control the populations of various disease-carrying insects like mosquitoes, so Zika, West Nile, malaria, uh, and dengue fever, things like that would likely become more prevalent. And in addition, on a larger ecosystem scale, uh, spiders themselves are also food for their predators like various species of birds, amphibians, and even fish, so their populations could also feel the effects of a spider-geddon. So point being, we need these guys to keep things in check. But apart from these consequences, we'd also lose one of the coolest animals ever. 
So through all of my research, uh, the main takeaway that I got was that these guys are absolute marvels of biological engineering. Uh, just to run down a few of what I think are some of the most amazing things about them. Uh, so spider limbs are hydraulically powered. They actually flex muscles in their abdomen and that pushes bursts of their blood or hemolymph into their legs to extend them. So that's why when they're dead, their legs wow. curl up. So they work like oh. little pistons. They also have uh, blue blood. Uh, unlike us, we have red blood. So whereas we have hemoglobin, uh, which is a molecule that binds iron and lends our blood its red color, they have hemocyanin, which binds copper instead, oh. and thus gives them a blue color. Um, mm, interesting. Also, we know spiders mainly for the fact that they make webs. Um, but important thing to know is that not all spiders make webs, but they do all make silk. And as a consequence of this, some of them use that silk in various other really creative ways. So for example, there's a type of spider called a diving bell spider, and it's the only species that's known to live underwater. And the way they do this is they construct these little sort of web bubbles that look like diving bells that they enclose themselves in, and that allows them to continue breathing air underwater. So they wow. turn themselves wow. into little scuba divers um, <laughs> and stick their legs out and then catch um, aquatic insects in that way. But in that way, they only have to go to the surface once a day and can otherwise survive underwater. Um, there's also a really cool type of spider called a bolus spider, and they make essentially a little lasso with a blob on the end with their web and sort of swing it around to kind of catch various flying insects. Um, another thing that I thought was really, really fascinating, um, and that spiders have been observed to do for a very long time, even as far back as Charles Darwin, actually, um, though until recently we didn't fully understand just how amazing this is. Uh, so spiders do this thing called ballooning, where they climb to a very high point, usually a tree branch, um, and shoot some webbing into the air and then use it like a little parachute to float away. Wow. Um, cool. And we always thought that those flight paths were dictated by the wind just carrying them. Um, but a very recent uh, study in the journal Current Biology showed that the full story behind how this happens is so much cooler. Um, so essentially, we found out that spiders are capable of detecting the Earth's electric fields. Um, and the way this actually works is that, uh, so their uh, webs they spin have a negative charge, um, as does the Earth, and as you go higher into the atmosphere, you have more of a positive charge. And this is replenished and increased by uh, meteorological incidents like lightning storms. So spiders are actually capable of detecting the net charge in the air and deciding, all right, this is a good time for me to shoot up some web and float Whoa. in the air. And it's... It's just really, really amazing. I don't know. I thought it was very cool. Mm. Um, and then, of course, we also know that spider silk itself is a pretty fantastic material. It's known for being exceptionally lightweight and strong and stretchy, um, five times stronger than a piece of steel the same thickness, to kind of give some figures that really show how incredible it is. A strand that's long enough to encircle the earth would weigh just over a pound. And a web oh. with strands as thick as a pencil could stop a Boeing 747 in mid-flight. Lastly, uh, the last thing that I wanted to mention about spiders and why they're awesome um, is that they're also being researched for their potential contributions to medicine and technology. Um, so one of my favorite unusual kind of examples that I encountered, uh, a compound derived from the venom of the Brazilian wandering spider, uh, also known as banana spiders for a hilariously appropriate reason that you'll see in just a minute, um, is being investigated as a potential treatment for erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> oh. All right, spiders are Low fine. Blow. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it was interesting you mentioned spider blood because yeah. So spiders are uh, are an arthropod or, or an invertebrate that breathes kind of in the same way that bigger animals do. So they actually some spiders have lungs or tracheas, whereas a lot of insects just kind of passively diffuse oxygen. Mm-hmm. But that means that spiders can actually grow much bigger than other small insects. So unfortunately the, for all of us. Yeah, that, that's the downside. <laughs> Noah, have you learned nothing from this segment? <laughs> what I have learned is that they're incredibly valuable, and they're most valuable when they're doing things that aren't near me. <laughs> <laughs> but they are they are kind of cool in that regard for for such small things. But another thing that they have in common with us compared to arthropods and other small bugs is they have simple eyes. Um, so they have like a single retina that focuses light from one point as opposed to like the thousand eye uh, fly eye. Um, and there's a really cool story just a couple of years ago about two astronomers who were playing around with spiders. And one astronomer had her office. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, because it just <laughs> happens. But one astronomer had her office overrun with spiders and she didn't know why. And she like posted it on Twitter and another astronomer friend said, oh, I read something. You can like chase them away with like a green laser pointer. So she used a green laser pointer, and they actually followed it, like, out of her office. Wow. And so she posted the video on Twitter, and a bunch of her friends were talking about it. And eventually that video got to a spider scientist or an an arachnologist, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, yeah, we can explain that because they have simple eyes that are very good at detecting certain wavelengths of light. Um, And then with this many spider and space scientists talking, they figured out that this particular species of spider has eyes that are very good at focusing on far off points instead of near points. And they have many eyes, so they have eyes that are good at near points as well. But they said, why do they have these long distance eyes? And they actually realized that in certain phases of the lunar cycle, spiders behave in a certain way. And so these zebra jumping spiders that they found will actually change their migration or the way that they move during full moons. Wow. What? Wait, and that's, I mean, is it from looking at the shadow of the Earth on the moon? They believe that it's from the visual stimulus of the moon being full in the sky compared to any other state in its lunar cycle. Yeah, but they they laid out a case in in a paper with spider and space doctors. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Spider doctors talking (laughs) to space doctors. Space doctors talking to spider doctors. They put it all out on paper. Um, regrettably didn't have time to go through it, but it made it, um, it was a New York Times, Science Times headline in like 2017. Um, and of course, there's a ton of interest in the ways that we can use and ideally produce uh, spider silk for construction, textile, and even defense purposes. So while some of this research has been focused on biomedics, so in this case, generating an artificial version of silk informed by our understanding of its physical properties, we've also recently made headway in producing actual spider silk outside of spiders. Um, So I read an article whose title includes the phrase, rise of the spider goats. It's pretty great. Um, it was about a group at Utah State who genetically modified goats to produce uh, spidrone proteins, which are the main structural units of silk. Uh, these proteins could then be filtered out of the goat's milk and processed to produce silk. Um, and what to me was most amazing about this, and actually we've seen it repeated um, in mice and in pigs as well, is that spider silk doesn't appear to evoke an immune response in mm. mammals, um, which then opens the door for its application in medicines and people as well. 
that's really interesting. Right? It's mm. it's bonkers to me. So kind of a personal interest, since uh, my research is actually focused on the lung. Um, a study that was published in the journal Nature last year um, described the possibility of using spider silk as a replacement therapy for lung surfactant in premature babies. Um, so to kind of summarize this, your lungs produce this special liquid uh, that coats structures within them called the alveoli and essentially reduces the surface tension on those to then allow them to expand and fill with air, which is very necessary to their function, you know, as you're breathing. And actually, if we didn't have this lung surfactant, our lungs would collapse. Um, so it's very important to have, and unfortunately, um, sometimes in premature infants, if they're born too early, uh, their underdeveloped lungs actually won't have that surfactant, so it has to be given to them uh, separately as a medicine. Um, and it's currently produced in pigs, which makes it very costly, but if we can do it on a larger scale using spider silk proteins, um, that would make it cheaper, which would be great for all the premature babies of the world, and also maybe allow us to use it in the treatment of other lung diseases as well. Um, so in summary, spiders are bomb, though if you love mosquitoes and hate babies, then I guess we can agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've arrived at the trivia portion of the episode. So today's quiz, in keeping with our facts, will be all about the myths, and in some cases, realities, that inspire the stereotypes we have of various animals. Question one. The Disney documentary White Wilderness espouses the misconception that what animal has suicidal tendencies? Right. Uh, I think we know it. Uh, you want to do it on three, Rob? Let's do it. One, two, three. Lemmings. Yes, one, it is indeed one. lemmings. Um, and basically, this is from a scene in the movie where a bunch of them are shown running off a cliff. And the explanation that's given is that it's a mindless act of mass suicide that these animals do, um, driven by group hysteria and an instinct to curb their own population, when in reality, the film's camera yeah. crew actually corralled them and chased them yeah, they, off they of said cliff. They, oh, wow. uh, they chased them off of the cliffs in, like, jeeps. Yeah, lemmings, they don't do that. So question two. What dichromatic animal stereotype which is derived from its participation in a sport, is physically impossible due to the fact that it is a dichromat. Oh, it, it sees two colors. Or it is two colors. It is two colors. Dichrome. Oh, I don't well, know. a tetrachromat or like a trichromat refers to like vision. Oh. It's like humans are trichromatic except for some women are tetrachromatic. You're right. Okay, okay, that's a good point. So I think dichromatic refers to vision. Like they can only see in black and white. I'm assuming this oh, is dogs, dogs. because they, everyone says they're colorblind, but they're not really that kind of colorblind. They're not like, they don't just see like, like it's the 1950s TV. <laughs> like they, they just have like different yeah. sensors. Okay. So then what's the, what sport they participate in? Dog sled racing. <laughs> they can't. That is one. You're right. <laughs> um, oh, bulls go after the oh. red cape but they can't see red is that it that is it nice very Ooh, nicely yeah. done you guys got it <laughs> we do that again <laughs> <laughs> so as ah. noah said uh, chromacy is a term that describes the number of color receptors or cone cells that are in an organism's eyes and that dictates the range of their visual spectrum so humans are trichromats typically because we have red green and blue cone cells bulls on the other hand uh, have red green color blindness because they are dichromats, so they only have two types of cone cells, so they can't be angered by the color red because they can't actually see it. Mm. Instead, they're agitated by the uh, the cape itself mm. being shaken around. So, question three 
General Beauregard Lee has the distinction of being the most accurate contender in an annual event that is held in various places in the U.S. and Canada. What kind of animal is he? I would say he's a groundhog. That makes wait, a ton of sense. He's, so it's, he's accurate. Wait, wait, can you say it's an event? Uh, yes, in an annual event. Mm-hmm. Annual event? Could be yep. a groundhog. Groundhog day. Could, I know there's more than just Pakistani Phil. Yeah. I like it. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So General Beauregard, Beauregard, no. Uh, General Beauregard Lee is known as the Punxsutawney Phil of the South. Mm. Uh, he lives in Jackson, Georgia, and has a surprisingly high 94% accuracy rate um, wow. in predicting late winters and early springs. And he's also a holder of doctorates in weather prognostication and southern groundology, awarded by the University of Georgia and Georgia State, respectively. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so question four. March Madness is both the basketball tournament and the name given to the breeding season of what notably proliferative animal? Well, it's rabbits. Yeah. They're hares. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they are proliferative. Those March hares. Bow chicka bow. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, brown chicken, brown cow? Yeah, no, no, no. Brown no, 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 no. Cow. Rabbits. Oh, okay. <laughs> You are correct. Woo! <laughs> that is the mating season of the European or brown hare. No, that was bad. Like brown hair. I'm not doing it. Okay. What, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking it's about? not a good callback. I'm just getting rid of it. Okay. Um, so yeah, so March Madness is the mating season of the European or brown hair. Uh, so for most of the year, these guys are nocturnal and very shy, but in the spring, they basically go insane. Um, males run around in broad daylight chasing after females, while females box or punch them away um, if they're not interested in their advances. No, no it looks very desolate right now. Um, not disturbed. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and the phrase, mad as a March hare, comes from this maiden frenzy. That they go there through every year. So there you are. Um, all right, question five. What animal, known for its supposed insincerity, gets its reputation from the observation that it cries while eating? Oh, uh, it's um, a weasel or a... crocodile tears. Oh, yeah, it's crocodiles. They cry two times. One when they're eating, because the tear ducts are like linked to the salivary glands, and they also cry when they've been out of water for a long time, uh, because it keeps their eyes wet. Ah. Oh. Crocodiles. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so the saying crocodile tears actually dates back to medieval times. There's a passage from a travel account uh, written in the year 1400 called The Voyage and Travel of Sir John Mandeville um, that states, In that country be a general plenty of crocodiles. These serpents slay men and they eat them weeping. So the idea being that they're feigned sympathy because the crocodiles are crying over the very thing they're eating. Oh. Bunch of dicks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so question number six. Uh, What animal, despite its supposed prudishness in captivity, can have sex up to 40 times in an afternoon in the wild? Um, This is the pandas? Yeah, it's gotta be a panda. Like the great panda, of course. <laughs> they yeah. are great, aren't they? They're... <laughs> Not in bed. Well, I certainly think so. So yes, it's the giant panda. Um, so the main issue is that in the wild, pandas are polygamous, and they like to have their pick of multiple partners. Um, you know, as do people, right? You want to match up with someone who you actually like. Um, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, in captivity, um, they're paired for breeding based on genetic dissimilarity uh, to boost the genetic diversity of their offspring. Um, so, you know, not really based on attraction, we'll say. So they have nothing in common. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
So actually something interesting is that uh, yeah. in order to coax pandas to uh, procreate, um, all around the world they're trying these different things, and one of the things they've tried is showing pandas panda porn. Um, and basically they, oh, no. <laughs> uh, they have, you know, as, as, as is well known that, uh, in zoo conditions, giant pandas in captivity have proven to be, let's just call it unenthusiastic about mating. Um, and as a result of that, you know, as you mentioned, they're in danger of extinction. So what some researchers tried was that they showed several captive giant pandas at the Chiang Mai Zoo, a number of videos showing other giant pandas having sex. Uh, and claimed that they actually had some success in getting them... Um, in the mood? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, could, could it be that pandas aren't having sex in zoos because we're videotaping them? It's <laughs> like, get out of here! Also a problem. <laughs> I've always, I've always had that thought, so like, bad. do you want, you know, like, how there's... You've always had that thought? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I've always <laughs> had that thought. <laughs> Um, another thing they're trying to do actually is uh, using Viagra to sexually stimulate pandas, um, which has thus far been unsuccessful. So maybe your spider. Say maybe they should use therapy. spider venom. Exactly. Instead. Maybe that'll work. That's the real problem. See, spiders can save the pandas. They're too. clearly willing to try anything. Fair. Well, and if only the pandas were. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Well, maybe then they can take a tip from uh, a no, zoo. Now, pandas could take a tip. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then maybe... <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. <laughs> All right, then maybe uh, panda trainers could try and emulate um, a technique that was <laughs> recently tried at a Dutch zoo. In their case, for female orangutans, they have in captivity. Um, in their case, they actually developed a Tinder-like app for this, for an orangutan, so that way she could swipe her preferences um, among various <laughs> males from an international breeding program. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me sad for the orangutans or sad for the humans that do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So question seven. So as may not be a surprise, uh, a kangaroo is actually featured um, in the Australian national symbol that is often displayed at sporting events and also serves as the mascot of the Australian Olympic team. In this logo, in this form, uh, what is the kangaroo depicted as doing? So boxing kind of jumps to mind. Yeah. As a thing kangaroos do. I, don't I was going to say, there, there aren't that many, like, uh, they, they jump and they're famous for boxing and also, Emily kind of went like this. I'm not sure if she meant to do that. <laughs> For the viewers at home. <laughs> Emily, Emily accidentally, I think, she, went, she said it just sort of inadvertently made like sort of the fisticuffs motion, but like very close to her chest. Just like the full No, I just feel very antagonistic about how many questions you guys are getting right. That's what's going on here. The full, You're not helping like, right now. Uh, <laughs> like the Notre Dame fighting Irish leprechaun look. That was like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, boxing, I guess. Then. That would be my inclination. So that is correct. Mm. Um, so the idea of boxing kangaroos actually first comes from uh, their behavior when they're fighting in the wild. They'll actually grab uh, an attacker with their little arms and then hold them while they kick. <laughs> and it kind of looks like boxing from afar. Uh, but something that I didn't know is that kangaroo boxing was also a thing that people actually used to do in the 19th century as part of traveling shows and spectacles. Nope, nope. Oh, people would box with kangaroos. People would box with kangaroos. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you do a YouTube search, then apparently people are still doing uh, boxing with kangaroos. Well, which recently, well, not that, well, I mean, within the last couple of years in Australia, there was uh, an incident where 
Um, this guy was out with his dog, and a uh, kangaroo had, like, wrapped its arms around uh, this dog and, like, wouldn't let go. Um, and so this guy, like, ran up to the kangaroo, got it to let go of the dog, and then they just squared up. And the guy was, like, had his fists up, the kangaroo had its fists up, and then the guy just out of nowhere just socks him in the jaw. And the kangaroo just sits there stunned and, like, <laughs> freezes completely. Uh, and then the guy runs back to the car. <laughs> and it just looks so confused. <laughs> Man, one kangaroo zero. <laughs> I mean, gen- like, I just want to make it clear that the Facts Machine podcast does not approve of abusing kangaroos. But in the event that one has a hold of your dog, it's okay to yeah. smack it just a little bit. <laughs> Kangaroo boxing yeah. is only permitted as a measure of self-defense. Yeah. There we go. Mm. <laughs> if only somebody had told the pandas that it's okay to smack it just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Can we do more dirty panda jokes that aren't going in? Ah, uh, sure. What do you think the panda Well, there's a lot that's not going in with the pandas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so question eight. Unsinkable Sam, famous for surviving three shipwrecks, Lends credence to what animal's um, key stereotype, or one of their key stereotypes? Um, I'm guessing it's a cat that survived several traumatic things. Uh, that could be it. I have this weird feeling like it's a turtle. Um, oh, they just get really old. Yeah. But, like, you wouldn't be shocked if a <laughs> yeah, turtle survived I can't think of a stereotype, but that was, like, the first thing I thought of. So, by surviving, it... Affirmed a stereotype. Yeah. So, it's something about the survival... Or is it something about not drowning? I mean, it, I mean, maybe it's a cat. Yeah, I and like it. The, the last thing is, is there any animal that like has some myth with the ocean? I don't know. Pigeons. <laughs> like, <laughs> was like Moses parted the Red Sea with the help of his friendly weasel. And like, <laughs> Sat on his staff. Like something like that. Stuck out his little paws and just <laughs> spread the ocean. <laughs> I think we should go with cats. I, Let's I'm go with cats and nine lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we did it. Like, we did it. Guys kind of circled and then left and I then came back and then left again and then came yeah. back. <laughs> so, yeah. So, actually, I would argue that Unsinkable Sam's story actually defends uh, three different myths about cats. Um, nine lives was the one that I was thinking of mostly in terms of the fact that he survived three shipwrecks, but also that cats are really unlucky and that they're not fans of water. Oh, so ships yeah. cats in general um, are a long-standing maritime tradition. Uh, they were kept on a lot of ships because they kill rats and mice. Um, and Unsinkable Sam in particular, uh, so his original name was Oscar, and he was a cat on three ships in World War II. Uh, the first was the Bismarck, which is a German battleship. Heard and it, it sunk in <laughs> May 1941. Um, from there, he was rescued from the water by the HMS Cossack, which is actually the British destroyer that sunk his previous home and itself was torpedoed five months later. Um, in Did Sam have anything to do with that? <laughs> like Sam's on the telegraph, just like ding 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 ding. We're ding, ding. right here. <laughs> eating all the carrier pigeons that are telling them to move. Who knows? Yeah. But then, after the Cossack sunk, uh, he was brought aboard another ship, the HMS Ark Royal, um, which actually was also involved in sinking the first ship that he was on, and that itself sunk a month after he boarded that ship. <laughs> so. He was on three sunken ships within the same year, um, was subsequently re- renamed Unsinkable Sam, and then sent back home to the UK to live out the rest of his life. That's a terrible thing. He was sunk so many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he survived. 
So I think it was just a long con for him I, to get back on land. He's I like, can't nah, believe, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> I can't believe this fact isn't about how this cat is like the best German secret agent yeah. of, world, of World War II, right? That's true. Well, I guess maybe sinking his own ship was a cover at first. Well, I mean, he no, his, or he sought his, revenge. Yeah, his ship <gasps> yeah. was sunk by these two British ships, and then he found his way onto them and just destroyed <laughs> both ships too. of bare pod. All right, well, nicely done. You guys got all of the questions right. <laughs> all right. Nice. So I think we uh, recovered Back from the last episode, <laughs> and I think we're we're good to go. Very nicely done. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fax Machine. Be sure to follow us on our social media accounts, uh, again, on Twitter and Instagram, at Fax Machine Pod, and also on Facebook. And we'd really appreciate, if you like what you hear, uh, if you could drop us a rating or drop us a few stars, that would be awesome. So thanks very much, and see you guys next time. And over the course of the mission, uh, these creatures proliferate. Over the course of the mission, uh, the pilots pro-, pro. Wow. Over the course of the mission, the jellyfish proliferate. Pro- <laughs>